I want everyone to be a seasonal worker at least once in their life. I feel like being a seasonal worker, you meet people from all over in different backgrounds. And that is something that has changed me a lot into the person I am today because I think I was, I know I was, I was very, I was pretty closed minded coming into this because kind of where I grew up and the lifestyles and what I thought was the normal. And it's not that it's not normal for anyone else, but there's so much out there. And because of a seasonal job, I was able to learn that and experience it and open my mind up more to be like, hey, you know, the world doesn't only operate this way. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Megan Young. Megan was in issue five of the Seasonals Quarterly Magazine, actually on the cover, and she wrote an article. How are you today, Megan? I'm doing great. How are you, Joey? Really good. Yeah, enjoying my quarantine, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing for some people, and I think it's a really bad thing for others. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some of the the stories of people just going totally crazy are unfortunately funny to me. I know. I'm kind of, that's kind of the giggles I'm getting out of all this is like seeing measures people are going to, to like keep themselves busy. And I think I'm very lucky when I'm at quarantine. So I, you know, I'm not going crazy yet. So I'm very fortunate to be where I am with everything that's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good. Where, where are you? I'm currently in Haines, Alaska. Um, I was just in Anchorage like about two weeks ago. Um, and then I lost my job, which was bound to happen. I was working at a local ski hill there and, uh, as a lift operator and, you know, we kind of actually set our closing date to April 2nd, which is today. But, um, with everything going on, they shut us down, which is totally understandable. Um, which was okay. Cause I was kind of, you know, prepared to lose it anyways, eventually. But, um, so I was still at school. I was flying at my flight school. And then uh, a couple days after I lost my job, my instructor calls me and tells me we had to shut down because the mayor of Anchorage put in the order to bunker down and like all the non-essential businesses, basically as in everywhere else. So, um, I was kind of contemplating whether I just sit in Anchorage and maybe wait it out and hopefully the school would open back up and I'd continue my training. But my instructor, who I trust with my life, was like, hey, you know, I think this can get worse before it gets better. And I was on a I was on a tight timeline because of some traveling I was going to be doing in June and then on to the next seasonal position. So I was kind of on a tight timeline and he was just like, hey, you know, I think it's realistic for you to go to Haines right now because that's where my boyfriend's at. And he's working for the heli skiing operation that our friends own. And uh, he's like, if I were you, I'd just... I'd get the hell out of Dodge and get down there and just bunker down with them. And, you know, I don't think he's like, you'll just pick up with your flight training where you left off as you plan to do this coming October. But I was going to gift myself my instrument rating for my birthday this year. And so that didn't happen. But 
I am in a great place. I'm with my boyfriend. I'm with some really great friends, and we're here together. We're doing it. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, what was the last uh, seasonal job you you were working? So let's see. I was doing the lifty job at the hilltop ski area in Anchorage, but right, right. before that, I was in Ketchikan. And this last summer season, I worked at um, our fishing lodge. It's called Beacon Hill Lodge. And I was helping doing housekeeping and dinner service and uh, van driver, basically. Um, The two people that own it, husband and wife, they started it up. They've been around for around 30 years or so. So they've got a pretty cool operation going and they've built up a really great clientele over the years. And I was kind of just like their right hand man around the lodge and like little stuff that they needed done. And then. They treat us like kings and queens, so it's amazing. They're super great to us, and it's just like a little family-run operation, basically. And yeah, it's great. It's really good summers down there in Ketchikan. It's great. Where in Ketchikan is the lodge? Um, it's on the north side of the island, over right next to um, Clover Pass Resort. That's actually where we moor our three boats, and then the lodge is just down the way on the water. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Super beautiful on that side of the island. The whole island so, is beautiful, but it's very, very pretty out there. So this might sound like a ridiculous question, but have we met before? <laughs> you know, I, okay. When I saw your picture on Instagram when we were finally messaging. So I, oh, I don't know if you'll remember this. So I met Kelly at um, the asylum. And then I happened to run into her on a ferry once. And I was like, hey, like, you're that cute bartender from the asylum. And so we chatted a little bit. And then another time I was in the asylum, she recognized me again. She bought me a shot. Awesome. But there was also a time when we were at the asylum and I was upstairs with my friends. And uh, maybe we were playing pool or something. We were on the, like, the balcony side. And I wiggled and my elbow hit our beer and it started spilling on the table and then down onto, which I think it was you who was working down below behind the bar. And we were just (laughs) like, oh my God, we just dumped a beer on the bartender. I mean, we were not drunk. Like, I think we were on our first beer and I was just like, oh my God, this guy's going to kill us. And Grace walked upstairs and I gave us a towel and was like, no big deal. Help us clean it up. Whatever. Something you were used to. And I think it was you. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I also think that was the summer of 2017. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, there are two, two things that, that remind me of one, I've had a beer poured like off the table up there and down. And the other one, yeah. somebody dropped a bottle of Coors Light or maybe threw Ooh. it. I don't know. So oh. maybe, maybe you were the one that spilled it. I, and that wasn't last summer. Yeah. That was, uh, one yeah. of those summers before. Yep. There's a good chance I spilt a beer on you, but I think that's our only true, you know, <laughs> run in, <laughs> which is unfortunate, but you know, Hey, it's what's funny, I guess. I it's, I think it is fortunate because you got me on a nice day because I'm sure some people <laughs> that I didn't realize I was meeting for the one and only time got right. like the worst side of me. <laughs> No, you handled it like a champ. I felt so bad because I've definitely worked in the food and beverage industry long enough to know stuff like that just gets under your skin when people are being ridiculous, basically. 
<laughs> but I guess that's also part of bartending I've learned too. So you just kind of learn that's the lifestyle and you get that mindset to deal with the shenanigans and all the hooligans around. Yeah. That's how long have you been, been going to catch a can? Um, so actually 2017 was my first season. I went up to catch can in June. Um, it was great. Um, my really good friend I went to high school with, his uncle owns a couple of lodges in Ketchikan. So, for example, Clover Pass. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Silver King Lodge and yeah. Cedars in town. Okay. Um, so, like, actually in years past, like, people from my high school from southeast Idaho, they would go, like, summers after graduation, they'd go spend the summer up there and work on the docks. And it was nothing I ever did. And two of my very best friends did it right out of high school. And then, you know, years later I do it and it was fun to like talk to them about how different it was and what their experience was like doing it. And then what mine was. And it's kind of funny too, cause they're twin. My two best friends are twin sisters and they used to do seasonal stuff all the time. And I thought it was, I just kind of thought it was crazy because, you know, I went to university right after high school and then I started flying and I had a nine to five job and I was just like, man, that's crazy. You guys are all over the place. And now we've like completely switched. Like they're in one place and they have their jobs and doing their thing. And now I'm the one all over the place. And yeah, we laugh about it all the time, how we just like completely switched roles. (laughs) So yeah, tell me, tell me about how that started. I mean, you went from, like you said, a nine to five to seasonal work. How, how did you make that decision? (laughs) This is kind of silly, but it's true. Um, when I was in Idaho and I was flying and I was doing the nine to five job and in my flight school, I went through a stupid breakup, you know, typical. And my buddy whose uncle owns the resorts in Ketchikan came through and he's like, Hey, I'm getting ready to go to Alaska for the summer. Like, you want to go? And I was like, uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. And I like talked to my flight instructor and I was like, Hey, I have this chance to go do a seasonal job, make some more money for flight school. And he was just like, yeah, I think that's great. Like where you're at with your training, go make some extra cash, come back and we'll bust out your license. And, uh, so I did it and I applied to the job and my now very best friend, Marie is, she was my supervisor for this job. And we did an over the phone interview, which is typical seasonal. And we later found out that summer that when we both did our interviews, we were in bar bathrooms. <laughs> she was in Valdez, Alaska at the Fat Mermaid in the bathroom interviewing me. And I was in Pocatello, Idaho in the Hooligans bathroom interviewing. And she uh, she loved me. So she offered me a job. And a couple weeks later, my mom and I hopped in my car and we left Idaho and headed for Prince Rupert because to get on the ferry. And then we made it to Ketchikan in like four days, maybe four four or five days. That's pretty good. What, what was your nine to five job? Um, I was working as a lineman at an FBO. So FBO is a fixed base operation is what they call them out at airports. It's kind of where all the smaller general aviation and like private jets will fly into airports. Um, I was working. So a lineman is a person who fuels everything. So I was running around the airport and the fuel trucks fueling everything while I was doing my flight training. And then I also did a little bit of part-time stuff in the office, just kind of as the secretary at the front desk when people come in, pay their bills, greet them, you know, typical secretary work. 
which was, I enjoyed it. It was really nice, you know, being in the type of industry that I was basing my career off of. So it was great that way. And I always got to see helicopter and so many different aircraft in that job. Like I think I actually started flight school right when I got that job. So it was really cool to meet pilots coming in when I was so fresh to the aviation world. And I would just sit and question them like, Hey, how'd you do your training? Like, where'd you go? Like just all sorts of questions. And (laughs) occasionally you get the pilot who's like, yeah, yeah. You know, come sit in the cockpit and look at this, look at that. Let me tell you about this helicopter. And then I get other pilots where it's just like, I need a hundred gallons of jet fuel. Like, you know, don't want to talk to me. I'm like, okay, I got it. Yep. Fuel coming right up. (laughs) (laughs) You got it, sir. What, uh, what brought you into like, wanting to go to flight school and in this, the world of aviation? Yeah. So the summer before I decided to start flying, I believe I was working in Driggs, Idaho at a private golf course. And it's right across from the Driggs airport, which tiny area, but there's a lot of people in their big fancy aircraft that fly in because it's, cheaper for them to fly into Driggs versus Jackson Hole. So a lot of people fly into Driggs and then just drive over to Jackson Hole. And I mean, there's still a lot of money in that valley anyways, but there was a lot of helicopters in those two summers I was working at that airport. And, you know, at that job, I was driving a beer cart on the golf course. Super awesome. There were just all these different aircraft and I'd always see these cool helicopters. I was just like, man, like that looks so cool. And yeah, I'm going to be sitting in an office all day helping people stretch. And that just doesn't seem very cool right now. (laughs) Like it's a great field. My best friend is about to graduate as a physical therapist and she loves it and is amazing at it. But I was so ungodly bored in that industry. (laughs) So I think, I really think that summer job of being the beer cart girl, seeing all those helicopters is really what took me in the direction of wanting to be a pilot. And there's not a ton of helicopters back in my home area. The majority of them are like medevac helicopters, lifelike style stuff. So I would occasionally see them for, you know, rescues of that sort, which is always, I don't know, everyone gets so excited when they see a helicopter. I don't, I really don't think I've came across anyone that's just like, oh, a helicopter, get it, you know, that's so weird. No, everyone's always fascinated by a helicopter. and. I like get a really extreme fascination with them. I think <laughs> from sitting on the the golf cart and seeing the helicopters and deciding that's what you wanted to do. What, what's the next step? Like, how did you figure out what you had to do? Um, so after that, um, that's when I went and did that introductory flight with the school that was actually in Pocatello where I was living um, during the school year. So I found it, you know, Google, our best friend, found it, called them up, and it was super simple to just set up the introductory flight. And you sat down one-on-one with the instructor, and they explained how the school works and the licenses and kind of break it down for you. Because, I mean, I was going in blind. I knew nothing about aviation. I, you know, I'd flown commercially X amount of times in my life at that point. But, yeah, it was a whole new world to me. So it was really cool that they just sit down with you and, you know, you get a whole packet of how it's broken down and how to pay for it. And it just, as soon as I got in the heli, the, once we got up in the air, the instructor actually let me take over the controls and like really feel what it felt like to move and just fly that helicopter. And I was like, wow, (laughs) this is a job. Like, I think, I think this is much better than kind of the route I was taking 
and I'll happily do that. I was, I was bored with the route I was on and it just instantly, like you just kind of instantly knew that was what I wanted to do and should be doing. And then explain the, the whole idea of flight school and what goes into that. Yeah. So flight school is kind of, it's kind of confusing for people. And it was definitely confusing for me for a minute. Um, so it's kind of broken down into five different licenses. So there's a private pilot, an instrument rating, a commercial rating, a certified flight instructor, which you'll hear it called CFI, and then certified flight instructor instrument, which is CFII. So it's kind of like you start out, you get your private pilot license, then a lot of people go on to instrument training and then commercial training. And you can you can finally get a job when you have your commercial license to actually like be a paid pilot. You have to have commercial and a lot of people or a lot of places, companies require you to have the instrument training for like, you know, for example, if you fly into bad weather, you can't see anything. You've got to trust your instruments. You got to know how to use them. But then there's also a ton of helicopters that are not rated to fly in instrument conditions. So it's kind of, I've had, I have met a handful of pilots who have their instrument rating and then who don't because they're like, oh, helicopters never fly in instrument conditions. You know, you don't need it. But then other companies are like, nope, we want you to have it. You might need it one day kind of thing is kind of how you look at that. But yeah, so it's definitely a journey. It's not cheap by any means. And it has been a long journey for myself personally, because when I did start flying, the flight school was partnered up with a university down in Utah. And it was like, hey, you sign up with this university and you work on a degree and um, you can take out a student loan because you can't just go to, you know, somewhere to get a student loan and send it to a flight school because they're not recognized as accredited universities. So it's not just like, yeah, let me go take out a student loan and get school done doesn't work that way. So that's kind of how they partner up with universities. And then you can get that student loan. It goes to the university. And then basically the university will sign a check and send it to your flight school. And like, that's how a lot of people pay for it. So once I first started, I transferred all my credits I already had to the new university, which is Utah Valley University. And they've got a big aviation program. And it's an online program is what I'm doing. It was like, hey, sign up with us go out for your loan. We'll sign it. I was like, okay, cool. Um, I started small for the first semester, you know, making sure I didn't take out a giant loan and then, you know, maybe not love it or, you know, who knows what could have happened. So I started small and then everything was great. And so the second semester rolled around and I applied for a little bit more money. And then the school came back and they said, well, Hey, actually we just um, created a new policy here. And each semester, we're only going to sign off, you know, $2,000 loans a semester, which $2,000 in the flight world is (laughs) a joke. It's like not even a week's worth of school if you're going full time, like $2,000 is nothing for how expensive flight school is. So at that point, it was like, crap, you know, this was my plan of how to pay for flight school. And now they've just changed their policy that they won't give me larger amounts each semester. So I now have to learn how to pay for flight school. So my parents, you know, they're not loaded, but they would help as much as they can. And, you know, I'd get like a thousand bucks every couple months from them, which was amazing. So grateful for it. But it also just like um, spaced out my training, which also made it very difficult 
just because every time I went and flew, I was a little rusty because I was taking all these gaps, trying to kind of space out my money and make as much as I could to throw it into a flight account. So it took me, it took me longer than I would like to admit to get my private pilot license, but it was such a rewarding feeling when I got that handshake from the, um, the pilot I flew with to get my license. It was such a great feeling. All that hard work and time had paid off. And I actually took a break in flight school for a couple of months and went and got my EMT license so that I could also work on an ambulance to help put towards flight training. And I did that and on the weekends here and there. I'd go work on the ambulance to help put in my flight account. So yeah, it's been a journey. It has been quite a journey. And I've just, seasonal work has honestly been a huge, has put a huge impact into my flight account because I basically just bust my ass all summer long and save up as much money as I can and put it right in my flight account. And then I fly all winter long. And then I kind of, that's been the routine I've been on the last two years is bust my ass in the summer to make money for flight school and then fly in the winter to keep progressing towards my career, basically. Yeah, that's a great thought I didn't really think about. You can sort of just make a shitload of money and then that's, and then you go back and train for your flight school. Yep. Very cool. Yeah, it's been great. It's been cool. What was the the reason for getting the EMT certification? You know, it was something I kind of always loved or was fascinated by, like seeing an ambulance. And it was just one more thing to help bring in some money to pay for flight school. And I actually, the ambulance I worked on was back in my hometown, which was about an hour and a half from the town I was living in doing flight school in Idaho. So on the weekends, I'd like go home and stay with my parents and work on the ambulance for the weekend. And I don't know, I just always kind of loved it. And I kind of always had in my head too, that for whatever reason, if maybe flight school didn't work, like paramedic school was something I always thought is something I would enjoy. And definitely like working as an EMT proved that like if I ever needed a backup plan, I think being a paramedic would be my next route, which at this point, I don't expect backup plan. I'm happy where I'm at. But yeah, the EMT world of emergency medicine is fascinating and a whole new level of adrenaline rush. Is there a job out there where you can mix the helicopter pilot and the EMT stuff? Uh, the only one really that would mix is if you did do medevac. And but I, I mean, I would never leave the pilot seat and like help with the patient. But it's also, I think, it'd be an amazing rewarding feeling to, you know, fly to a scene and pick up someone and take them straight to a hospital. And like, that's me doing my duty of the emergency. So that's kind of one way to look at it, but I, w- I definitely wouldn't be hands-on as a patient or on the patient while being a pilot. I guess. So that's kind of actually the only way I could see those two worlds colliding, which is like my absolute dream job. It's kind of like the job I would like to retire out of because those jobs require a lot of flight time and there's other flying jobs I'd maybe like to get off my bucket list before I kind of settle into one, one flight position. So yeah, it's definitely, it's the job I tell people I want to retire out of is like being a medevac pilot because you know, you never have the same landing zone. And I think that's probably the thing that is so fascinating about helicopters to me. 
is, you know, I'm not landing at the same airport every day from like point A to point B, airport to airport. I'm, you know, I might land at the airport at night to put the heli in the hangar, but I'm not all day long. I'm never going to have the same landing zone. And to me, it's just fascinating where you can get those, some of those helicopters to land is like mind blowing. Yeah. So many new experiences. Yeah. Every time, like every landing is a challenge, you know? Yeah. So throw some numbers at me for flight school. Like what is, what's it usually cost or what's like a ballpark for it? So when I started, my flight instructor told me to get all five licenses, um, depending on, cause you know, it could take some people, you know, they meet the minimum and they're ready to go, you know, take their test. And then there's other people where there's different stuff they need to work on. So they end up getting a few more hours. So they told me to get all five licenses, I would be looking at anywhere from a hundred to 120,000 to pay for it, which is insane. But I just keep telling myself it'll all be worth it. And I'm actually sitting pretty good with where I'm at, how much I've paid for school and what I'm going to have. So when I, I've ballparked it, but when I'm done with flight school, I should be right around 110,000 in. And I will also have a bachelor's in aviation administration. So I think, I think I'm going to be sitting pretty good. I'll be, I think I'll be happy with that. And that's not all debt. Some of it is unfortunately, but that's just part of the game. But, uh, that's how much I'm gauging. I will have paid into all of this, which I chose to do it. You know, some people, my boyfriend does not have a dollar of debt to his name and he hears that and he just cringes, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not scared about it. I know it's something I had to do and I wanted to be a pilot. So I'm doing it no matter what it takes or the amount of dollar signs it takes. (laughs) I'm doing it. Right. It's a means to the end that you want. So yeah, absolutely. And I've had a lot of people ask, you know, why I didn't take the military route and basically get paid to become a pilot. But I just, the military world is not for me. I experienced it a little bit dating a soldier years and years ago. And it was great for some people, but it was just not something I ever wanted. And I get some old timers sometimes, like our clients at our lodge who, you know, want to sit me down and tell me all about the military and why I should do it. And I have, instead of just sitting and explaining to them that I just didn't want to, (laughs) I've now like started telling people if they bring up the military route, I'm just like, I can't, nope, I medically cannot, I medically cannot get into the military. And it basically shuts them right up, which (laughs) I don't want to be rude, but I've just had this conversation so many times with different people and like why they really think I should do the military route for flight training. You know, actually, I don't think I'm lying about that either because I broke my neck a couple years ago. And so I really, I don't think the military would want me at this point. So that's why I chose to pay for it out of pocket. (laughs) Right. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Because I can't. (laughs) So tell me about the season that you went on the surf adventure. Oh man. So that was last season, the heli ski season of 2019. 
I was in Haynes, Alaska, again, where I'm currently at. Um, I was working for Alaska Heli Skiing. And anyone in the heli skiing injury industry knows how complicated it is. The snow conditions, I mean, it's such a gambling type of business because, you know, it's 100% focused around weather. And last year was an insanely just bizarre winter. Um, lots of snow in December and January, super awesome snowpack. Um, heli ski season usually starts up usually around the first week of March. Generally, we had some good snow and then all of a sudden the wind comes in and it just ruined everything. So it's like, it's just so dangerous after big windstorms and, you know, the biggest concern is avalanche conditions. So, you know, our guides go out in the morning and dig pits is what they do to check the snow and the stability of it before we send clients out. And last year we didn't get as many ski days as we would have hoped. And then after we had the crazy wind, in came the high temperatures. And it was just like the snow was just melting as fast as it could. Like we couldn't believe what we were seeing. So our heli ski season got cut short, which, you know, it's kind of just part of the game. And everyone here knew that, you know, you can't be mad at anyone about it. You know, it's the weather, it's mother nature. And uh, it was, I think it was towards the end of March when we went to Yakutat last year. So our last two clients that we had, um, two guys from Australia, super great guys, they their whole trip, their whole heli skiing trip actually got ruined by the snow, but they actually, when they flew into Anchorage, they went and rented an RV and they did like the big loop up and checked out Denali and just basically made the big loop and checked everything out and then drove their RV down here to Haynes. And they were super understanding, you know, they're great people and realize, you know, it's not our fault that we can't really on mud slabs on the side of these mountains because the snow is melting in front of our eyes so I mean a lot of the time during heli ski season you'll get snow days or super windy days and it's called a down day so it's like okay hey what are we going to take our clients to do today to entertain them because the helicopter's not flying so I mean the property are where we have our heliport at is where I'm at and we have all these little ski runs set up and we have snowmobiles, so it's like we'll ski at the house, you know, we'll ski at the heliport, or we'll go down to the river and maybe try to go fishing, maybe try and go drop some crab pots off some friends' boats, you know, like anything Alaskan to give these people while they're here on days we can't fly. So that's where we were at last year with um, Matt and David, our Aussie clients. And it's like, man, what are we going to do with them? These guys are super big into the outdoors, they love everything what can we do to wow them? And Sean dog, our boss was like, Hey, I have an idea. We could go over to Yakutat and go surfing. And I, me being a landlocked Idaho girl, I was like, what? Like, we're not going surfing in Alaska. And these two, you know, Matt and David are like, yeah, like let's go surfing. And I was kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like explain this a little bit surfing in Alaska like I'd never even heard of that and yeah out on Yakutat there are some killer waves and a lot of people anyone really into surfing big time I think they know that Yakutat's kind of like this golden Alaska surf hub and I learned that 
I learned that hands down. So we all agreed. We're like, all right, we're going to Yakutat surfing. Um, Matt and David have a couple days with us. Like, let's do it. Sundog called up his buddy who had a beaver that could fit us all. And I said this in the story and it's like, pack light, you know, and I've never packed so light for any type of trip in my life. I literally just put on all my really warm down clothes. I think I had a pair of socks and underwear in my pocket. I think I was wearing my swimsuit and I had my wallet, you know, (laughs) like, okay, let's go. And, uh, we sure as shit did. We went to the airport and loaded up in the beaver and man, like that flight from Haynes to Yakutat was incredible. And you got to fly a little, you're like right on the border of Canada. And so it's just the mountains and the glaciers as far as you can see. Like it's also super nice to not be behind the controls sometimes when you're flying and you can like really take in the views and relax. So the flight itself was just wow, breathtaking. Then we, you know, we get into Yakutat and it wasn't, you know, oh, we've got our hotel, we've got a rental car, we've got all this stuff planned. It was like, nope, we'll get there. I know a guy that we can maybe borrow a car from. We'll go grab some groceries and we'll go to the spot on the beach and we'll camp out for the night and, you know, hit the surf in the morning. And (laughs) we did, we, it's exactly what we did. We, uh, right next to the airport, uh, Sean dog had a buddy that had a van that we rented from him. And it was just like, yeah, you know, when you bring it back, just leave some cash on the seat. No big deal guys. You know, super, you know, these small communities, everyone knows everyone. So like stuff like that, it's totally normal. You know, it's no big deal. There's no paperwork behind it or insurance fill out papers. It's just it's simple and it's super nice. So we grabbed our van and that's when we headed over to the surf shop. I had never been to Yakutat. It's a really small community, fishing community. And, you know, we pull up into this little neighborhood and I'm like, you know, you always kind of imagine like a main street, of town, you know, like where there's the grocery store or maybe a gas station at the end of it. Yakutat is designed very different you know there's not like a main street it's kind of all spaced out into a few different blocks anyways we pull down to a housing community and uh, we pull into this guy's yard and then you like there you see the little icy wave surf shop sign hanging in front of his door and uh like he comes out and greets us and it was just like he was so stoked to see us like people surfing in march and he was saying how good the surf had been and not a lot of people had been out but i mean he checks the surf like he was pumped. He was so pumped. And I had never surfed. <laughs> and I can't really even say if I surfed on this trip. I I paddled around on a board and tried to tried to stand up more so. But it was just, oh man, it was so cool. So yeah. We grabbed all of our gear, wetsuits. I mean, he hooked us up with everything and we were head to toe in wetsuits. So and this whole time I was just like, I was the only girl. I was like, I'm going to freeze my ass off. I know it. Like, but I just, I want to do this, but you know, I got to try. And that didn't happen, but let's see. Yeah. We grabbed all of our gear and we headed for the grocery store, grabbed all of our, our ski bum necessities, which was beer and hot dogs and chips and I think some coffee. Oh, oh yeah. Some chef boy RD for breakfast. Yep. That's exactly what we got. Pop-tarts, maybe quality food 
for, you know, we didn't have any type of cooler. We had nothing like that. So it was just like, what can we just sit on a log and eat tonight and in the morning? <laughs> um, that's when, then we headed down to the beach and you're, we saw the beach coming in and the surf and it was like, wow, like there actually are some waves down there, you know, like this is now, you know, you see it from the air, this is real. And we get to the beach and we are actually like in really thick trees. And then all of a sudden, you know, we pull up to the little opening through the trees and it's just like, bam, ocean. And that in itself was cool. And it was super foggy. It was really, really foggy. And like Sean Dog's like, oh yeah, you know, Mount St. Elias, it's right there. You just can't see it. The cloud line is so low and it's foggy and, you know, but uh, there's a really incredible view right there. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I believe it. Just can't see it. So that night was just fun in its own. We're on this big adventure. We're sleeping on the beach. We're drinking beer around the fire and eating hot dogs and Matt and David, super cool guys. You know, they're telling us about all the surf trips that they've been on. You know, they've surfed in Bali and all over Australia. And I, I've only traveled to like Mexico and Canada. <laughs> so places like that, you know, I'm just sitting there like big eyes, just like loving hearing about their stories and how amazing it sounds. And they're just like, they can't even believe that they're on the beach in Alaska about to surf. You know, they came to Alaska heli skiing and they're like, we're going surfing. Like they were so jacked and like their excitement just, it was radiating. It was just such a cool group of people and everyone was in just full swing of having a good time. And people like that are few and far between to find sometimes. And I don't know. In this industry, it's really easy for people to get mad at you for not going heli skiing when they paid money to do it. But, you know, we can't be in control of the weather. But these guys were just realistic. And they're like, yeah, duh, we get it. Like, sure, let's go surfing. So we did it. And yeah, that night on the beach, super fun. You know, we're all just chilling, sharing stories, hearing about everything. Sean Dog, he used to live out in Yakutat and, uh, he was a commercial fisherman. And so he, we were sleeping on the beach in a spot that Sean Dog had slept like years ago. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, you know, I used to have like a tent set up over there and that bunch of trees and this and that. And it was just like, Sean Dog was like back in his front yard again and uh, telling us all about it. And um, we walked down the beach a little ways to where we'd actually be surfing. And it was a little, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't very big that night because of where the tide was at, but it's just like, yeah, no, these will be much bigger in the morning. And he was so right. <laughs> they weren't huge waves, but for me who had never like seen a wave really that was surf that you could surf on, it was big. <laughs> they're like for Matt and David who surf like a couple times a week at home in Australia, they're like, oh, these are perfect. These would be so fun to ride. Like, perfect waves for beginners but also just like so fun for us because they'll be able to ride them really well because they're not too big but they're not too small so yeah that morning we had our coffee and our chef boy rd and put our wetsuits on and walked down the beach and this beach was there was so much driftwood everywhere like i can't even ugh, so much driftwood so like firewood there was not a lack of firewood anywhere so we got a big old fire going and uh 
Cole, my boyfriend Cole and I were the only two who had never surfed. So everyone was kind of giving us a breakdown of like what to expect and some basics. And, you know, we're running around on the beach, we're getting our blood flowing, we're stretching. And as you can see in our pictures, I had a giant stand-up paddleboard. And everyone was laughing so hard when they saw those pictures. They're like, you have the biggest surfboard and you're the smallest person there. I was like, hey, look, I've never surfed. And they told me bigger is better for balance. (laughs) And so, yeah, you're right. I had the biggest board. And it was really funny watching me try to paddle because, like, first off, I didn't take – I did have one of those, like, hand paddles for a stand-up paddleboard. But when I was first going out, you know, I wanted to lay on my belly and I wanted to paddle like a surfer. And my arm span was just so short and this biggest or this board was so big. It was like, you know, my hands were like the only thing in the water. It was pretty hilarious to watch. <laughs> oh, such good memories. But, oh, my God, paddling on a surfboard against waves is a whole new ball game of muscles and strength. And it was strength I did not have like wow props to surfers like now I understand why they all have surfer bodies because damn (laughs) that sport is not easy so props hats off but uh being in the water like I was so nervous even just like put my foot in the water because I was like I'm gonna freeze I'm going to freeze and it was it wasn't cold out it was 50s maybe it really for March in Alaska in the 50s like it was warm and I got in the water in this wetsuit we were in I think our wetsuits were like five fours super thick and I mean you couldn't even feel the water the only thing the water was touching was my cheeks you know my face was the only thing showing and it was just like like mind-boggling that I'm swimming in the ocean in Alaska in March and I'm not cold (laughs) Yeah, that was like, that was probably like the craziest thing for me to wrap my head around. And uh, yeah, surfing on its own. It was so fun to watch those guys catch waves and to like see them actually ride a wave because I also don't think I've ever seen anyone in person ride a wave. You know, I've been out to Cali and stuff, but I don't, I don't even think I'd ever seen anyone ride a wave. So it was so cool to see that and to be a part of it and trying to attempt surfing was super fun in its own it was such a great day and we all did like a couple on a laps I guess what you'd refer to it as <laughs> we caught a couple waves playing around and then we all went to the fire cracked open a beer warmed up and then the sun came out and the clouds lifted and the fog dispersed and it was just like holy crap <laughs> look at those mountains and Matt and David were just, I mean, we were all mind boggled because we knew they were there, but we couldn't see that mountain range. And Sean Dog, you know, you see his front yard and he was still like, yep, there they are. Like Mount St. Elias, I think Mount Logan, I think was another one that's in that mountain range. And just, oh my God, like such an incredible view. And it was just, oh, everyone just had such a great feeling in their stomach. And it was beautiful. It's definitely one of the like most beautiful things I think I've ever seen. And it is hands down like the most incredible adventure I've ever been on. Like, but I called my mom to tell her last year, like, hey, you won't hear for me. 
here for me for like two nights. I'm I'm going surfing. She was like, what what the hell did you just say? Like, did you just say what I think you said? I was like, yeah, mom, I'm going surfing. She's like, no, you're not. I was like, mom, I'm going to Yakutat. Dad knows where Yakutat is on a map. He'll show you. Look it up. I'll call you when I get home. And she's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, okay, love you. Bye. Like, <laughs> oh, so that was, it was pretty fun to like call my mom and share all those pictures with her and be like, this is what I was just doing. And she's just like, you're crazy. Like, you don't get that. <laughs> You don't get that from me. Like you know, you're crazy. But just such an incredible experience. Like I will never forget it. So much fun. Ugh, loved every second of it. So that is uh not not a typical day. It's a <laughs> very no. rare occurrence. What's <laughs> what's the job? Yeah. What's the job usually like? Um, so for me, the job, I was working as the dispatcher. So I am in communication with the helicopter at all times where, where, when they're out in the mountains and like, I've got a map on them, I've got a tracker on them and constantly talking to them. Um, and which is great. I love it. It's really cool to also be talking to other pilots and you know, the, the normal day is like, wake up. Everyone gets ready. The guys are getting ready to go out and check the snow stability. Um, clients don't stay here on our property at the heliport. They we rent out another little lodge down the way, so they're over there getting ready. And once the the crew gets back from the guide ship and they've like established the snowpack and like the area they think is the safest to go ski for the day is when we get the clients over here and get them ready. Um, there's definitely some training the clients have to do before they can even get in the helicopter. Like they have to have a heli briefing and like 100% know where they can and cannot walk near the heli, how to get in and out of the helicopter. You know, you can't walk up to a helicopter with its blades spinning with your skis in your hand, you know, straight up, but you would be surprised. Like people will do some little things because, you know, they see a helicopter, they get excited. Then there's, you know, they've got to do beacon and avalanche training a little bit. They'll go through some briefings. Um, so we make sure they know how to use the avalanche gear. Everyone carries avalanche gear, beacons, shovels, probes. They got to know what they're doing. So before the clients even like get in the heli, there's a decent amount of some training and paperwork that's got to be signed because it's, it's a pretty extreme sport. It's not just, oh, I can ski. I'm going to hop in this helicopter and go. And, you know, on the first run um, is kind of when your guide will gauge the level of riders he has for skiers and snowboarders to kind of have a better idea of what terrain to take them on. Because you can easily get someone in here that's like, oh, yeah, I'm an expert skier. I grew up, I had a house at Big Sky, you know. And then they get here and it's like, okay, we see that you've probably never been off a groomer. So we're going to maybe do some more mellow skiing, right? <laughs> like and that's how the guides will kind of pair groups up with riding ability and also broken down into weight because of the helicopter. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into heli skiing rather than what you see in the epic movies. Um, yeah, those movies, like heli skiing movies, for sure. This stuff is out there and it's in our front yard, but it's not necessarily what we're taking our riders to ski because you know it's everyday people who love skiing but they're not gonna go ride a spine down tomahawk up here they're gonna they're gonna do some more mellow stuff but 
we also do have film crews that come in where it, it is the big extreme riders who know what they're doing, who have done this their entire life, and they're looking for the shot, and they've got the film crew with them. So there's a little bit of both worlds. It's everyday skiers that we find what's good for them, and we take them out skiing. And then there's other, you know, people's ability where they can actually get on some of those spines and ridges and and get the shot that we all are used to seeing in heli so you're actually landing the helicopter up there and then they get out and start skiing. It's not yep. everybody just jumping out of the side like in the movies. No, no. And a lot of time in the heli ski movies, um, a lot of the time they'll fly with the doors off and, you know, they don't have, they have guides in the helicopter with them, but the guide's not getting out. Cause like in every day for us, your guide will get out, helps everyone get out. You get all the skis out of the basket. Everyone's huddled around in one spot, holding down the gear. And then like the heli takes off and everyone's got radios on. So everyone's in constant communication. And it's like the guide will go down and ski the line and test the snow, make sure he's staying in a safe spot. And then he'll radio the next person in line and is like, okay, stay left of my line, stay right of my line, or, you know, you've got room to play, you know, he's guiding them where to go. And then same thing, the next person goes down and they're guiding them. But on the heli ski movies, it's kind of like, okay, the one skier is jumping out in one spot and he's the only one going down and the helicopter's just flying around with the film crew filming them. And like the guys, you know, they've got eyes on the person the whole time. But yeah, it's a little more different for like a paying customer. It's very more mellow and safe in the sense of you're easily getting outside of the heli. Um, the guide's going to help get all the gear out of the basket. And, you know, everyone's stationed, holding everything down. Then the heli gets out of there and then you, you know, get your gear on and figure out what you're doing. Have you ever had a guest like surprised that it wasn't just like the movies and like, they're like, no, I wanted to jump out of the helicopter. Yeah. We, uh, you know, sometimes they're not dead serious when they're talking like that. They're like, Oh, you know, I've always had this idea burned in my head from the heli ski movies and it's, it is different, but, but they're not disappointed because they're still in a helicopter. They're still going skiing that, you know, stuff. A lot of people have never skied or will ever ski. And so they'll acknowledge that it's different, but they're, you don't really see disappointment. Occasionally you'll kind of get a skier where they know a big mountain. Like for example, Tomahawk is a really big, uh, big mountain up here that you can see in heli ski movies. And they'll be like, Oh, like we're not skiing Tomahawk. (laughs) It's like, no, 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 no. Like (laughs) you, sir, are not skiing Tomahawk. We, uh, that's a little more different, different level, but yeah, for the most part, everyone's very realistic and they're so excited to be here. And the last two years of me being here, we've had some really great clients, really awesome people who are, you know, they're here for the right reasons. They're here to ski good stuff. And, you know, they've had, we've had really happy clients the last two years that I've been here. So that's been really awesome to see because it is a tough industry. It's really, there's a lot that goes into it and it can be hard to please people because we're so dependent on the weather. And when weather gets bad, people get in bad moods and, you know, we always got to stay positive, even though, you know, last year we had some clients and we were like checking weather and everything. We were basically in like a 10 day forecast of just straight snow. 
it was like, all right, guys, like everyone buckle up because we're not going to be flying anytime soon. And so we got to keep our clients happy and busy. So let's, let's figure out what we're going to do and let's do it. So you said the season doesn't start until March 1st. Is that right? Yeah. Usually around the first week of March sometime. And I kind of always questioned that too, when I was new to the heli scheme, I was like, why, why is it so late? Why is it spring? You know? And it kind of comes down to the weather is generally better in the springtime. You know, you're getting a lot more sunshine and the snowpack is starting to be more stable is kind of part of it as well. And, you know, cause after a snowstorm, it's generally better to have some sunshine after it and it, the snow can bind together so that it's stable. You don't have different layers of unstable snow. Like that's when avalanche happens. So a lot of it does with goes with the snow stability and better weather mainly because, you know, December, January, even February, lots, lots of snow in this time. Usually waited it out a little bit. It's kind of the point behind that, which is cool for me to learn. I learned that too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. It definitely didn't expect it to just be like start at March though. Right. Yeah. And even this year, um, the property we're at, we have some amazing backcountry skiing. So we can like basically hike up behind the house and have some really great runs. And Sean Dog's even like taken his backhoe up there and cut down some trees. And like he's created ski runs on his property. And I got to go, I'm new to skiing. I used to be a snowboarder. And so I'm trying to learn how to ski. And I did, we call it, our run is called rerun. And we went up behind the house and did this. And I was in these big fat powder skis I'd never ridden. I had never been off a groomer and I did this ski run and it ate me alive. And it was <laughs> basically the equivalent to a double black diamond at a resort is what everyone here tells me. But, uh, I was, I was so mad, but I was having so much fun, but I was just so pissed that I was getting my ass whooped. And, but I mean, we're in such a great spot out here for like backcountry skiing. And in January and February, they just had so much snow here that we have some pictures like of my boyfriend. And I mean, they'll, they got a couple feet overnight and then they just go hike up and ski in the backyard in the morning and take a couple laps. And like the powder pictures are just insane. And so, you know, part of it's like, dang, you know, we should have had the heli and clients here skiing in February, but it was also snowing so much that the bird probably never would have really been able to fly because it did just keep jumping out awesome for people on the ground to hike up but not so good for a helicopter yeah it's sort of the, like a weird um area between a bunch of different parts like yeah you want it to snow but you kind of don't want it to snow yeah. sometimes as well <laughs> yes exactly like we pray to the snow gods we you know we want a big just dump on snow before everyone gets here maybe like a day of some fresh pow and then some sunny days, you know, if we could have it our way, but it obviously never works that way. But, and it's kind of been tough heli skiing in Alaska the last couple of years. It's, this was, it was actually probably one of the better ski years this year, the first probably two weeks of March. And then that's kind of where we saw things, people getting nervous to travel with Corona. We also got some wind up here. So it's, I don't, ugh, I don't want to say like, cool, Corona shut us down, 
but there's a good chance like if we had clients here right now that we're all booked out to be here um I mean we got some really bad wind and we haven't had fresh snow so like again the skiing kind of sucks <laughs> but that's just part of it so it's just a gamble it is such a gamble it's an amazing crazy industry and I have met some of my best friends and like the most important people in life in this industry I've also met like some clients mainly not necessarily co-workers but some clients that from all over the world and I'm just like you're crazy you are a crazy human being <laughs> like, yeah. I'm glad that you came here to ski with us but damn you are crazy <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine you get some pretty wild personalities that, like, rare personalities. Very rare. Yeah, you definitely get people with lots of money, and some of them are so great, you wouldn't know they're millionaires back home. And then you get some where they're cocky in the sense of where they've heli skied and what they, you know, different runs they've skied. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of crazy, which... You get a little bit of a little bit of both worlds of people that want to come up here and do this. So what is in the next uh the next few years for you? Like when do you finish up flight school and what are you looking at after that? So for flight school for me, I'm just going to pretend that the world is normal and that coronavirus is not a thing and has my school shut down right now. But in a perfect world, I would be done with all five of my licenses. Right around May of next year, pretty close. Maybe June of next year would be maybe a better one, a better goal to set. But since I'm delayed a little bit and not currently flying, it's slowly setting it back, which once I get all my licenses, say June of next year, um, I will start instructing. So I could either stay at my school or maybe go somewhere else and apply for an instructing job. So that's definitely the next step for me with flight school. And after instructing, a lot of people will go do um, jobs like tours, like flight scene tours, because you it's all based on flight hours. Like you get jobs based on your flight hours. And so um, flight scene tours are really good jobs to get right out of instructing because, you know, you're flying fairly easy routes and the same routes and you know it's simple flying in a way I guess so and that's there's lots of options for that and I know I could go you know I could go to Hawaii or I could go somewhere tropical and fly around waterfalls and volcanoes but I kind of don't have any desire to leave Alaska for flying because flying in Alaska is like the mecca Alaska is the mecca in my eyes. I want to be, you know, I want to be a bush pilot. So I think, you know, there's so many glacier tours and so many different scenic tours. Like even in Ketchikan, there's some helicopter tour companies that go fly around the misty fjords and stuff like that is what I'd rather do to like build up my time. And then as I like to say it, after I get those flight hours, you go out and you get a big kid job is what I call it. (laughs) It's basically a job where after you've reached, say, I think 2000 hours, you can go look for big kid jobs. And that's like 
companies who do all types of different contracts, whether you're long lining or you're transporting products or you're doing fires or you're doing heli skiing. Because like we don't own our helicopters. We lease them through a company in Juneau. And so like this company, for example, they do flight scene tours. They lease for heli skiing. They fly um, supplies and stuff out to miners and long lining and it's like a utility company. They do a little bit of everything, all sorts of different types of contracts. And that is definitely a job or like a company I would love to work for to just get all sorts of different flying in. It's not just one job and done. You know, you're flying different places, you're doing different jobs. And that is like ideal to me. And it's, you know, it's a little ways away for me because I'm low man on the totem pole. I'm still in training. And then I got to build up some hours instructing and then you know, that fresh out of instructor school jobs. And yeah, so it's quite, it's quite the process. It's not just, Hey, I got my license. I can go fly a medevac helicopter now. You know, that's, that's the guys that know what they're doing. It's the guys and the ladies. So yeah, it's a process, but every day I'm getting a little closer. I'm kind of currently on pause, but in my mind, I'm still getting closer. For someone not knowing a lot about the process, it's, long and uh, a little more complex than I than I realized yeah it is a little crazy and you know I wish part of me wishes I would have started sooner than I did but you know I didn't know I wanted to do that but I had some instructors in Idaho that you know did before me and loans were set up a little differently like they were able to go out to a bank just get a flat loan they went right to school they had the money and they they had the time and they just busted it out and they got all of it done as quick as they could. And that is totally ideal, but it's not super realistic anymore. So I kind of wish maybe I would have started right out of high school, but then there were so many experiences I also had in that time frame before I started flying that I really would have missed out on. So there's pros and cons to it. But yeah, there was a time where people could just go get their money, start up, fly, and they're ready to go. But yeah, it's, it's changed over the couple of years with with money and loans and all the requirements to get loans for students. And it's tricky, super tricky. Yeah. So you have a, a different way of getting into the seasonal lifestyle and sort of living within it. But do you, do you talk to people and maybe try to evangelize a little bit, try to get them into it, talk to friends from back home or whatever. I totally do. (laughs) I feel like at this point they're like, Oh my God, Megan, shut up. But every time I go home to Idaho and I see all my good friends and, you know, we talk about what I've been doing and tell them they're like, man, you know, that's so cool. I wish I could do like the thing I hear all the time is I wish I could do that. And I'm like, Oh my hell, you can do it. Like, And for the most part, like I have a majority of friends that the jobs they have and stuff are great, but they could also probably pick up, go do a seasonal job and probably even come back to it, which is huge. You know, like even if they just took a summer off, like they could probably come right back home and pick up where they left off. And that's great. Like not a lot of people could do that. Um, But yeah, I definitely try to encourage my friends. I even just encourage them to come visit me in Alaska. And just so maybe if they got a taste of it, they'd be more realistic. And it's not just Alaska in general. Like, I don't know. I do. I totally try and encourage it though. Cause they, I don't want them to ever feel like they're stuck. And sometimes I think they feel like, like, you just got to 
be brave and make the jump. And I've, you know, I tell them it wasn't easy for me. I picked up and moved from Idaho to Alaska and I knew one person and thinking about that years ago, I would have been like, Oh my God, I would never do that. You know, I'm such a social butterfly and I love my friends and my family. I would never just pick up and move to a completely different state so far away, but I did it. And it was the best decision I've ever made in my life doing it. It has brought so many more opportunities into light for me. It's brought new people into my life. I met my boyfriend at my first summer job. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's the best decision I ever made, hands down. Maybe besides being a pilot, but they're they're pretty close together. <laughs> right, yeah. It sounds like uh, two pretty good decisions you made there. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with both of them. So far, no regrets. <laughs> I want everyone to be a seasonal worker at least once in their life. I feel like being a seasonal worker, you meet people from all over in different backgrounds. And that is something that has changed me a lot into the person I am today, because I think I was, I know I was, I was very, I was pretty close minded coming into this because kind of where I grew up and the lifestyles and what I thought was the normal. And it's not that it's not normal for anyone else, but there's so much out there. And because of a seasonal job, I was able to learn that and experience it and open my mind up more to be like, hey, you know, the world doesn't only operate this way. Some people's lives may, but, you know, mine doesn't have to operate that way. I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. I wish everyone like maybe right out of high school would go do a seasonal job and get out of their comfort zone, go meet new friends from all over. And I, I don't know, I think it's a good path for people to take. It might take them in a different direction for maybe what they want to be when they're older or all sorts of stuff, different hobbies, different activities. Like I, I had never salmon fished, you know, and then I come up here and I'm on a salmon boat every day of the summer fishing for fun. Like I grew up fishing, but it wasn't salmon fishing. It's just, there's just so much to it. I just want everyone to experience a seasonal job in their life before they just, I guess the word is settle. (laughs) What, what's a a lesson that you learned growing up in Idaho that you use often now later in life? And what's a lesson that you had to unlearn for the better? Mm. Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Okay, let's see. A lesson I learned. Well, I'm very fortunate that my parents were pretty tough on me because I feel like they are the reason I have a, I like to think I have a decent work ethic. And that definitely came with me up here. And a lot of seasonal jobs that I've had are not, they're easy, but then I think they're easy because I'm a hard worker. So I think that is such a great trait that I brought from home. And Thanks. Hats off to my parents for that. Because I've definitely seen some people where you could tell maybe they are a little lazier or they were babied a little bit more. And, you know, some daily stuff on the job is difficult for them. I just want to be like, pull your head out of your ass and do the job. <laughs> but, you know, everyone's different. What was the second question? What have I learned in a seasonal job? What lesson from Idaho did you have to unlearn for the better? Unlearn, unlearn. Ooh. (laughs) Oh, man, that is so tricky. The first thing, (laughs) 
this is kind of ridiculous, but I don't know if I'd say it's a lesson, but I, this is so dumb. You might want to cut this out, but I learned that not everyone is Mormon. (laughs) I come from a very Mormon community. And so that's what I was always around. And like coming out into the world of the seasonal lifestyle, knowing that not everyone grew up the way I did and this and that, it was just, it was crazy, but it was great. So it's, it's kind of like I got to relax a little bit that I'm not surrounded by people that I feel like I have to tiptoe around. Cause I kind of felt like that where I grew up, you know, I wasn't super religious. My parents weren't strong in the church or anything, which is fine. But then, you know, I come out into a whole new world where there's a million different backgrounds and religions and everything. And I was like, oh, you know, I can be who I want to be and not kind of have to tiptoe around the people I've maybe grown up around. Like, oh, I probably shouldn't swear in front of them. You know, oh, I I can wear this tank top during the summer. You know, I don't have to cover up my shoulders. <laughs> so that's a little extreme, but. I don't know. That kind of seems weird, but it was kind of one thing that really learned. Like I came from such a strict Mormon area and then out into the real world. I'm like, okay, yeah, there are other, other options out here and I'm learning that and I make my own path and I'm doing what makes me happy. And that's the most important part of everyday life. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good one. It's uh I actually, so growing up in Ohio, there was one family that I went to school with um, that were Mormons. Mm-hmm. And then other than that, those are the only Mormons I knew. And then right. when I went to Alaska, I met a bunch of them. And that was <laughs> See, sort of my, so Alaska for you was a, you know, that, that place without so many Mormons. And for me, it was yep. like, man, there's a lot of Mormons here. Right. And see, what's kind of funny too is. I like gradually learned who the Mormons were in Alaska. So there's definitely, there's actually a lot, but there was also a lot more that are not than my hometown. You were either Mormon or Hispanic in my hometown and Catholic. And that was, you know, that was about it. Yeah. Usually the way I can tell a Mormon in Alaska is if I've never met them and they're absurdly nice because exactly. Most people I meet at the bar and Mormons usually don't come in and then they're uh-huh. absurdly nice people. So nice. Part. So nice. Which is such a good feeling going home. I'm like, I'm in such a nice area. It's, you know, it's not like Alaska's full of assholes, but they're definitely a little more rough around the edges, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I admire, I think, more so too. Yeah, coming from a place that's just filled with nice people to go to Alaska and it's like there's a there's a large amount of gruffness there yeah yeah exactly it's so true well Megan thank you so much for coming on and talking to me it was great great to hang out and chat for a little bit yeah I know it's been so awesome I've been really excited to do this I enjoyed it a lot thank you yeah that's it that's the episode the seasonals are Kelly Mogg Ryan Deininger me Joey Ravinsky the theme song by Ryan Deininger Joe Williams Louis Leva Chappie Thomas Hamilton follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore like us on Facebook listen to our next episode that's it we're out yeah